we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Since 1979, TireRack.com has been helping people find the right tires for how, what, and where they drive. They sell only the best, like the full line of Pirelli Tires. Test results, ratings, and reviews are there to assist. Or try the Tire Decision Guide to get a personalized tire recommendation. Tires ship fast and free to you or to one of over 10,000 recommended installers. In many areas, they offer mobile tire installation. Shop Pirelli Tires at TireRack.com. Seven boxes plus three free gifts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Wine-Banks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim is away this week on vacation, and you know we are going to miss her this week. Today, we'll be discussing the search warrant DOJ executed at Mar-a-Lago and Merrick Garland's decision to address the country about it. Search warrants. We'll do a deep dive into the different documents prosecutors file with the court to get one and what we are expecting to see and are beginning to see now that those documents are leaking out. And finally, we'll talk about the reaction on the right, including claims FBI agents planted evidence and calls for violence. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions. We know you have a lot of them this week at the end of the show. There's a lot going on. We're going to jump right in. But before we get there, I do want to ask my sisters, what's the most interesting thing that you've ever taken from a government office? Huh. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you <laughs> okay. one thing. Um, you know, n- nothing, certainly no uh, uh, nuclear weapon material, certainly no presidential <laughs> records, certainly, you know, nothing like that. But um, I did bring home with me a poster of the rap artist Lil' Kim if you know who she is. Um, yeah, you I, had that case. That's right. I, yeah, I prosecuted a case at one time where her bodyguard uh, falsely claimed to be a U.S. marshal um, in, in that she was a witness in the witness protection program and was a witness to a murder in a high-profile rap case and that he was her bodyguard and so he needed to fly with this, um, with his gun and he brought a gun on board a plane. Um, and then he had the bad luck. He, he was not. He was just a private security guard. He had the bad luck of sitting next to um, a group of secret service agents who were on their way to a conference from Detroit to Philadelphia. And they chatted him up and realized like, this is no law enforcement officer carries a gun like this. So he was prosecuted. He went to trial and um, he was convicted. But um, the FBI agent in the case, after the case was over, you know, sometimes people will give each other little mementos of cases they worked on. He produced to me a poster autographed by Lil' Kim. The handwriting looked an awful lot like the writing of the agent. 
Um, <laughs> but it was a great memento. I, I hung it in my office while I worked at, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I, I, I brought, I did bring that home when, uh, when I left government service. I love that, Jill. What about you? So I, I actually originally my first thought was, well, I took uh, three brass balls that were in a red Chinese lacquered box that had been given to me by my colleagues in the organized crime section because I had more than most men. But that really was wow. mine. <laughs> that, that belonged to me, right? That was mine. But I now that I'm listening to Barb, I realize I actually have um, a lot of Watergate memorabilia. I mean, I have a notebook that the we tapes? put together. Is that where the tapes ended up? <laughs> it's Jill, the 18 minutes. I Jill's have a, living no, room I, on that red mantle? <laughs> exactly. No, I do have um, some of the evidence photographs from the tapes hearing, the pictures of Rosemary doing her famous stretch. But the more interesting one that I have is when we went in to see where the recording devices might be in the Oval Office, we took pictures everywhere, including the Oval Office bathroom. And I have a photograph of the Oval Office bathroom, which now hangs in my guest bathroom on the second floor. So that's probably the most interesting thing that I have. Wow, I always thought we were fancy. Barb, I have a picture of us and eight or nine of our colleagues in one of the women's bathrooms at the White House when we were there one time. Do you remember that? We all got on that couch in the bathroom. Yes, I do remember um, but that. not the Oval Office bathroom. That's that's impressive. <laughs> um, so here's mine. It's sort of like Barb's. It's a memento. I, I had done some Dixie Mafia prosecutions as a pretty young prosecutor, a lot of um, drug running and, and drug trafficking cases. And we had at one point gone up in a helicopter and overflown an area where they were operating up in Sand Mountain, Alabama. Um, and it was the kind of helicopter flight that my boss, the criminal chief, would not have approved of, for one thing, because it was a Vietnam-era helicopter with no doors, uh, but also because some of the customs agents who'd been doing overflight for surveillance purposes had been shot at. So I knew that Bud would not be real happy had he known that I went up. But I did it nonetheless because I'm an adventurous soul, and I had on— that, like they stick a big helmet on you because you can't yeah. talk. You can't hear anything when you're up. So the only way that you can communicate is through that. It's possible that on the way back, I was sitting in the front next to the pilot. It's possible that on the way back, they may have actually let me fly for a few minutes. And when I left the office, I was given an old black and white photo um, of uh, me up in the, the helicopter flying that day, which I'm awfully glad to have. We're going to have to do a conversation about flights in, in situations like that, helicopters and other planes. V.com or look for the link in our show notes. Well, it's been quite a week at Mar-a-Lago, or as Joyce called it in her uh, civil discourse substack, Search a Lago this week, I guess is uh, is the name of it. By the way, if you don't read uh, Joyce's Civil Discourse Substack, you should. It's excellent. Um, That's very it, nice, Barb. Thank you. It is excellent. I enjoy reading it. Um, on Monday, Donald Trump himself announced that the FBI had raided his beautiful Mar-a-Lago home, which is really interesting. You know, usually the law enforcement itself does not announce these kinds of things and they go kind of quietly because no one announces them. Donald Trump himself, you know, the best defense is always a good offense. And so he uh, made public statements about this uh, 
you know, horrible abuse of power and weaponization of the Justice Department by raiding his home. I, I know I'm going to hear um, from Joyce about using the word raid. It's like, a, it's a bad word. I um, just tweeted that again. I know, I, like, I know. Don't I, say raid. I, I agree with you. It's not a raid. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's hard to, it's hard to avoid it. No, it's not a raid. I taping the promo, so don't feel bad. It is not a raid. I, that was Donald Trump's word. I, uh, it's, uh, it's a terrible phrase. Search warrant authorized by courts. Um, each day this week has brought some new developments in the case. So I want to um, ask about all of that with you. So maybe let's just start with Monday. Um, Jill, Monday was not the first episode in this dispute between Trump and the government over documents. Can you give us a little timeline of how this dispute began going back to January? Sure. We've had a lot going on and the National Archives had previously, before all this, retrieved 15 boxes of documents in January. And then there was a subpoena issued, and that was served in June. And they didn't do anything when Donald Trump apparently didn't respond to that until this Monday when they went ahead with a search warrant. So in other words, the search warrant was the final step. It escalated. The Department of Justice did everything right. It tried to use less intrusive methods, and it's ridiculous when the former president now says, I was cooperating. They could have had anything they wanted. Well, no, they couldn't. They left with apparently 20 more boxes. 20. That's a lot of stuff that existed that he didn't turn over. So we have to make certain assumptions. We assume that they properly asked for anything that was classified and that he didn't give it to them. And so now they have taken another 20 cartons of documents away that we now know included top secret, sensitive, compartmentalized information. Yeah. In fact, Jill, now that we know what was on that list, you know, it was revealed on Friday when that search warrant got unsealed that there are like 11 sets of classified information. In some ways, do you feel like they acted too slowly? Did they give Donald Trump too much deference? I mean, there's, as you just said, secret, top secret, uh, SCI, sensitive compartmented information. Um, did they give him too much courtesy letting this stuff hang around in the basement at Mar-a-Lago for nine months? So, you know, having been general counsel of the army and having dealt with this kind of material, it is extremely dangerous. It to be classified as TSSCI, it means it poses a grave danger to our national security. That's really serious. And so that means that it should have been seized immediately. But what we don't know is what's in the affidavit. We don't know whether the information was obtained on Sunday, on Friday. It has to be fresh, so it couldn't have been a week or two ago. So they may not have had the information to justify probable cause for a warrant until now, even though they suspected by reviewing what had been turned over, they could then sort of piece together, well, we think certain things are missing. And so it had to be based on probable cause. And so I can't say that they were too slow in acting, at least not now I can't. Right. No, I, I think that's probably right. Um, Joyce, let me ask you a little bit more about classified documents. There's even been reporting that some of these documents might be about nuclear weapons 
Though, of course, the warrant itself didn't include that much detail. It just said secret, top secret, uh, and, and those sorts of things. Can we talk about what some of those definitions mean? I mean, Jill just told us a little bit about classified information and, and how it's defined. Um, can you tell us a little bit those terms, secret, top secret, SCI, SCIFs? How does that all work and what does it mean? Yeah. And, and you know, um, I suspect that we have all at different points in our lives held top secret clearances with SCI access. And something that you know uh, as the holder of one of those clearances is how rigorous the training is, how seriously the responsibilities are drilled into you. I'm certain that Donald Trump received the same, if not a superior level of uh, training on how this stuff works than what we did. There are three levels of classification. Confidential is information that, if it's released in an unauthorized fashion, would damage national security. Then there's secret information. That's information that, if it's released, would cause serious damage to national security. Top secret information, if released, would cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security. And and that's what the Wall Street Journal is, in essence, reporting DOJ removed from Mar-a-Lago. But it's a specific type of top secret information. It's designated TSSCI. And the SCI part means that it's sensitive compartmented information. That's usually information that's either about or derived from sources and methods of collection. In other words, it's the kind of information that we need to maintain careful control on. It's the sort of information that can cost people their lives if it's released in an unauthorized manner. And we all know how important this information is. When you get it, there's no mistake about what you're looking at. There's a cover page. It's marked on every page. It's big and bold. You can't miss it and make a mistake. And if you're looking at SCI information, you're in a skiff. You're in a secure location. You sign in. You give up your phone and all of your other Mm -hmm. electronic devices. If you take notes, if you're involved in some ongoing work and you take notes in a skiff, you leave those notes when you walk out the door. It's not the sort of thing where you can make an innocent mistake. Yeah, I agree with that. And, um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, Trump claims that, well, uh, his lawyer floated this idea. Um, Well, he declassified them all. You know, he just waved his wand and he said, I hereby declassify all of these. Can he do that? Yeah, y'all are going to have to beat me because the answer to that is bull. Um, Yes, he is the president. Yes, he doesn't have to jump through the um, same hoops that other classification authorities would have to jump through to declassify. But look, it's not like he can just think inside of his own head this is declassified. There are a number of steps that have to be taken, including the spillover of the change in classification to entities that are using the material. So, It's a lower threshold than it would be, say, if Barb was the head of the FBI and she was declassifying information. She'd have to go through bureaucratic channels. But even for Trump, he's got to do more than wave a magic wand. And here's the kicker on this. If these really were classified materials, I don't think that they would have had to have come out with this story about they planted information. The FBI planted information during the search or all of this other rigmarole, there wouldn't have been the suggestion, the delay about giving back the material. Um, And the SCI stuff, above all, that's not stuff that he could have declassified easily. Yeah, this is like the shape-shifting defense, right? First, it's denial. I don't have any documents. Then they must have planted those very serious secret documents. Then it's... uh, 
the, the latest one is, well, I, I declassified them. So, you know, which is it, uh, right? We had three versions. All right, here's my theory as to why he's using this declassification defense. It's right up there with the Twinkie defense. You know, this is the one, the defendant who killed Harvey Milk used, like I was uh, all, all, all high in sugar from too much uh, junk food. Um, how about this? These charges, and I want to ask Jill in a minute what the charges are. These charges all require willfulness, which is an extra element that most crimes do not include, but certain very serious, sophisticated crimes do. Ordinarily, ignorance of the law is no excuse, but for certain crimes, you must prove willfulness. That is that the person knew they were violating the law. So here you go. Trump mistakenly thought he did have declassification power, believed in good faith that he had declassified them. So when he retained them, he didn't know he was violating the law. What's your reaction to that? You think that's it? Well, first of all, he would be violating the Presidential Records Act even if they weren't classified Right, documents. but that one has no penalty. But it's still a violation of law. Yeah, he does. So <laughs> I think we have he to keep in mind that that's, that's sort of a funny defense. And as Joyce has pointed out, but I want to raise an issue about, is that there was an expert on MSNBC today saying that the rules for declassification by a subordinate are laid out in the law, but that for the president, they aren't. So in effect, I would say Congress better get busy to fill that gap in because what he was saying is that it is possible that the president can wave a magic wand in his private confines of his office or his bedroom, and that's it. And there's no way for us to know whether he declassified them while he was president, when he would have had that authority, or if he's now saying that as a defense. So um, we don't know. And we also don't know whether the FBI asked for him to produce all classified documents. And he thought, well, these aren't classified because I declassified them, so I'm not turning them over in response to a subpoena because it's the wrong subpoena. Um, or whether they asked for the return of all documents that belonged to the archives because they were presidential records. And the penalty is interesting on this one because it could include disbarment from running for office again. And I know, and we can talk about this, that there's differing opinions on whether that is a constitutional uh, uh, act where Congress has said as a penalty for violating this, one of the penalties is, and he, by the way, increased the penalty to a felony. It had been one year and he increased it. Well, we know now what statutory citations were used to get this search warrant after the unsealing of it on Friday. There were three different statutes that the government uh, asserted and a judge found met the probable cause standard as having been uh, violated. And those are um, this statute, 18 U.S.C. section 2071, about the retention of uh, government records. They don't have to be classified for that statute. Um, that one is punishable by up to three years in prison. The Espionage Act, which is a big deal, 18 U.S.C. section 793. But there are a lot of different ways you can violate the Espionage Act, so I'm not sure precisely what they're alleging here. And the other one, which surprised me, was 18 U.S.C. section 1519, which is an obstruction of justice statute, makes it a crime to conceal documents to obstruct 
an official investigation. Um, Jill, what, tell us about that one. Uh, you know, I think that there's been some speculation about the other two, including the one you just mentioned, 2071, which brings with it that maybe constitutional, maybe not constitutional provision that a person can be disqualified from office. 793, which is punishable by up to 10 years for uh, taking national defense information and failing to return it. But this other one, obstruction of justice, is punishable by 20 years. What do you think about that one? Do you think that one's got some legs? I, I do think it has some legs. Um, again, I'm speculating because we don't know exactly. But if we're talking obstruction of justice, it means that there was something under investigation. And again, he had the opportunity to return these things, to respond to a subpoena, um, but he didn't. He kept them secret. So this could be another big thing. Um, 20 years is a pretty serious crime, but so is espionage. Just imagine having someone run for office yeah. who is charged with espionage against our own country, who's endangered our country. And you know, as I said, the retention of government records, whether they're classified or not, is serious, not only because we believe in transparency and because the National Archives for Historians maintains all the records of a president. And, you know, the Presidential Records Act goes back to the time of Nixon, where he thought he could sell his presidential records and make money on it, and where because of the tapes, he was trying to leave office with the tapes. And action was taken very quickly by Congress to make sure that um, the government was the owner of all those documents. And so ever since then, there's been this Presidential Records Act. And as you've both been saying, he knew he got the same training that any of us got as government employees. And we knew we couldn't take any secret documents, and when I say secret, I don't mean secret as in classified. We couldn't take anything that belonged to the government with us, period. You just can't. And so I think that these are all potentially viable claims, and this idea that he declassified them does not protect him against 2071 or 793 or 1519. None of them are protected by the fact that they're declassified. Hey, Barb, can I make sort of an inside baseball point? I've been thinking about this. I'm not certain I'm right. I'd love to know what you guys think. And it goes back to our conversation about the declassification defense. You know, the government bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case. So you might say, well, maybe Trump would never, you know, be prosecuted because DOJ would be so worried that he would assert the, class, the declassification defense. And even though it might not be reasonable, it might keep the government from convincing a jury of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So I have this take on, on that. I think that that's actually um, a little bit, it, it skips one step here. Yes, the government bears that burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but before Trump could come forward in a trial setting and offer declassification as a defense, he couldn't just walk in and speculate, right? He can't walk in and just say, well, maybe it's been declassified. Even though it's a very low threshold, before he uh, has the ability to offer that defense, 
The judge has to hear his evidence, hear his proof, and make sure that it's at least credible, that there's some proof. We saw an example of that in the Steve Bannon trial, where he tried to rely on that defense of advice of counsel, Mm -hmm. and the judge said, nope, you can't present evidence of that to a jury. There's just nothing here. I think Trump, too, would have to pass that low-level burden of uh, presenting some credible evidence that there was declassification. So I know that that's a little bit long-winded and rambly, and maybe that's the appellate lawyer in me. It's just my way of saying to our listeners that if you hear people suggesting Trump will never be prosecuted because the declassification defense means the government could never reach the threshold of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, I think that that's not quite the analysis. And Trump has to come forward with something more credible than just saying, I declassified. There has to be some small level of proof there first. Yeah, I suppose he could- Am I off base with Well, he could testify that I I said, I hereby declassify. And I told Ivanka, who was my senior aide, I wanted to declassify. I thought she took care of it. Who knew? Who would even know that there are all these things? (laughs) Well, but you raise a very interesting possibility there, right? He might have to testify. Defendants in criminal cases don't like to do— I mean, no lawyer would put him on the stand. Yeah, possibilities. (laughs) Um, I also want to raise the possibility you've you've both raised how serious these charges are. I mean, the Espionage Act is the one for which Julius Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were put to death. So, you know, no one's suggesting that, you know, he has sold these secrets to a hostile foreign adversary as they did to the Soviets. So I don't, Not yet. <laughs> I don't think we're anywhere close <laughs> to that yet, but these are serious, serious crimes. There's still also one possibility, though, which is that the government got this search warrant just because they want the documents back and that maybe they will ultimately decline prosecution. I mean, certainly there's probable cause. Maybe they get to the point where they believe they can prove the case at trial. Maybe they don't. Maybe they think they have the evidence, but they declined to prosecute, that could happen, right? And it could just be, you know, thanks and good day. We need these documents back. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of steps between a search warrant and an indictment. And when we first learned of the warrant, that was my initial thought. They just want their documents back. Um, I'm still not 100% that we'll see a prosecution, but as the facts get worse, I think the investigation gets ratcheted up. I think it's not all that likely that it's just they wanted the documents back. I think they did want the documents back because these type of documents need to be kept in a secure environment, and this clearly wasn't. But I think that the fact that they've asked for the camera footage from the hallway where the door was to some of the to at least one location where these documents were kept so that they could see who had access, who actually entered that room, means that they're pursuing this to see, did he let other people see it, either carelessly or deliberately? And carelessly is just as bad. If you take these kind of documents, and and let's say that he, in his mind, waved his magic wand, and I'm changing pins from the rat I'm wearing to a magic wand for tonight's shows, (laughs) Um, because if he waved his magic wand, which we don't think is possible, but if he did, he still shouldn't have been allowing someone who might endanger us to see them. That's what's so troubling here is that do we want a president who so cavalierly declassifies things that are dangerous to our country? And so I think it's important to know that and just getting back the documents won't make that point for him should he be reelected or for any potential wrongdoer who might get elected. So I think we need to keep that in mind as 
a protection for the future. All right, let me ask you both one just quick question. Um, the role of Merrick Garland in all of this. Obviously, he said uh, on Thursday that uh, he authorized this search, that you know the ultimate decision was his and he took responsibility for that. And he issued that press statement and took the unusual step of unsealing a search warrant mid-investigation. Joyce, you have long advocated for DOJ to do more talking about processes to educate the public. What did you think of Garland's statement? Do you think it was a violation of DOJ policy to talk while an investigation is pending? Or do you think it didn't go far enough? I thought he did a really good job. He walked the line. It's a tight line he had to walk. He stayed in his lane, which is the lane of justice, and he stayed away from any politics. You know, he didn't violate Rule 6E with his statements. 6E prohibits uh, government agents and prosecutors from talking about ongoing grand jury investigations. He didn't violate the search warrant, which was still sealed at that point in time. Once the court seals the search warrant, you can't talk about its contents. You've got to wait for the judge to unseal it before that's proper. And he didn't violate DOJ policy in his statements. In fact, he did exactly what you referenced, Barb, what I'm a huge advocate of. He talked not about the substance of the case in an inappropriate way. Instead, he talked about process, about how DOJ is supposed to conduct itself. And so he explicitly reminded people that DOJ speaks in court and in its pleadings and doesn't try its cases in the press. And I was a big fan of that. He was very clear both in the pleading and his comments in uh, expressing, I thought, a little bit of disdain for Trump, saying, we went in very carefully. We took steps to keep the execution of this search warrant out of the media, out of the public's eye. And it was Donald Trump who brought the public attention down on himself. So I thought he did that in a very low-key, clever way. Look, um, last night I I heard his niece, Mary Trump, friend of the podcast, um, say that Garland was the kind of man that Trump was quick to dismiss because of his quiet demeanor. And she described Garland as a ninja. And I think she got it just right. He was a ninja for justice yesterday. I like ninja man. Oh, that's great. Ninja for justice. And I agree. Yeah, I completely agree with Joyce. Uh, particularly on the last point of how he was playing 3D chess in doing this. And he clearly had the justification, which was privacy. Well, the person whose privacy we might be protecting and we're trying to protect has made this public and has made accusations against us that are untrue. And we therefore think that we should be able to make this public. And it's a balancing test, much like so much in the law. It's balancing the equities in this case, which is the public's right to know and need to know um, about this kind of conduct with the personal interests involved. And it seems to me very clear that in this case, the personal privacy interests are far outweighed by the public's need to know. Yeah. And I thought one particularly clever tactic was to, to remind people that our norms are important and we adhere to them even in times of a great crisis. And our norms are to speak only through our court documents. And so we're going to unseal a court document so you can see what it says. I thought that was a really brilliant way to handle it. He didn't talk substantively. Uh, he unsealed the document so that it could do the talking for him. I thought that was terrific. Your trial today or look for the link in our show notes.
The Fourth Amendment protects our right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures. And here, a magistrate issued a warrant and did it because there was probable cause. So that judge is now being threatened with violence because he's the one who signed off on this. But let's look at what went into getting that warrant and what it all means. And Joyce, I'm going to start with you about the steps to getting a warrant. And in, in this case, we know there was a background of there was a request and there was some negotiating. Then there was a subpoena and now there's the warrant. So what does a warrant look like? What, what would it have included? And what are the blank spaces that have to be filled in in general? So let me try to give you just a, a high-level view on this. There's a packet of papers that prosecutors and agents work together to prepare and submit to a federal judge when they're asking for a search warrant. First, there's an application. It's, think of it as a cover sheet. The importance of the application is that it often specifies the crimes that are under investigation. And then there's the warrant itself. It's left blank for the judge to fill out, but you give the judge all of the information that they would need some of the most important pieces of information, often they're included as attachments to the warrant because the amount of information exceeds the very small boxes on this old form. I think this is the same form that we were using in 1991 when I went to the Justice Department. But you have to specifically describe the place that's going to be searched. I once rejected a warrant because two DEA agents brought it to me, and it said, go to the end of the street, turn left, and it's the yellow house second from the corner. And so we looked at sort of an early version of Google Maps where you could look at the area and there just wasn't a yellow house there. And I was like, you guys, this doesn't make any sense. And it turned out that, that the description was inaccurate and that had to be fixed before we went back and got the warrant. You got to be specific. And a failure to do that can um, make your warrant susceptible to problems down the road. And then there's attachment B. That's where the judge specifies all the stuff that you can search for. And this is really important because if you're authorized to search for a stolen vehicle, you can only look inside of something that could contain a stolen vehicle, right? You can't go into the refrigerator or your personal safe in your office because they couldn't contain that stolen vehicle. In this case, though, the search is primarily an authorization for documents, for containers that could contain documents, for stuff close to documents. Um, and so in this case, that makes the search very expansive. That's what you do at the time that you're getting ready to submit your application. And I think Barb is going to talk a little bit about the affidavit, which also accompanies those papers. So, and then the other thing that's really important in this process is the affidavits that are filed with it to show probable cause. And let me stress, it has to be fresh probable cause, that there's evidence of a crime has been committed and that the location is where evidence of that crime might be. So how much evidence is necessary, Barbara, to establish probable cause and mention the difference between that and beyond a reasonable doubt? Yeah, um, I love it when you call me Barbara, Jill. It sounds so endearing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so probable cause is a legal standard. And, you know, I've been hearing it recited incorrectly all week. People are saying, 
it means it's more probable than not that a crime has been committed. That is not probable cause. It's actually lower than that. That is preponderance of the evidence, which means 51%. That's the standard in a civil case. Of course, the standard in a criminal case is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, there may be some wild possibility that the defendant is not guilty, like space aliens came in and actually robbed the bank. But, you know, our reason and common sense tells us that it was this person and I'm satisfied. Um, probable cause is different. It is reasonable grounds to believe that the crime has been committed. And so it's, uh, you know, there, there are facts. Sometimes it's overwhelming, uh, but you have to satisfy the magistrate judge. And from time to time, I've had magistrate judges say, no, I don't see it. I don't think there's enough. Go back and do more investigation and satisfy me that it is um, that there is probable cause here. And you mentioned freshness. That is a reason that a magistrate might reject uh, an application for a search warrant. It might be, um, you know, my application says, um, 50 years ago, I saw the Nixon tapes in the home of Jill Wine Banks. And they'll say, yeah, 50 years ago, kind of a long time. What, you know, do you have any reason to think it's still there? And so maybe you send someone into her home to visit and you look around and you say, you still have those tapes, Jill? Oh yeah, they're right here. I keep them right on my mantle, right next to all of my beautiful uh, uh, vases on, on my mantle behind my red wallpaper. And uh, now I've got fresh probable cause. I can put that in my in my affidavit. But the affidavit itself is where the story is told. The things that uh, Joyce described are all of the forms that need to be very carefully filled out. But this is the story. And this affidavit that is sworn to by an agent uh, may cover 10 or 20 or 30 pages as they describe the investigation. We typically included a paragraph that would say, this is not every fact known to me, but this is every fact uh, necessary to uh, establish probable cause for this warrant. Um, and uh, you have to show that uh, there is evidence to support each and every element of a crime. So if there's an intent element, that has to be proven as well uh, by this probable cause standard. Um, and so we we don't get a chance to see that in this case. And I think that's uh, you know where where all the action is. You also asked about whether the agent must have personal knowledge of everything. Hearsay is permitted in a, in an affidavit. You know they'll just describe all of the things that have happened in their investigation. So it may be I spoke to the bank teller who told me that uh, the robber came in and wore a yellow mask. Uh, and then we'll say, and a yellow mask was found in the parking lot. And there was DNA in the yellow mask. And the DNA matches the hair sample that we took off of this defendant. So, you know, it might be a collection of things like that that would have to be brought in by individual witnesses. You know, the person who saw him, the person who collected the mask, the person who analyzed the DNA would have to all testify at a trial, whereas the agent can kind of summarize that in his affidavit if he swears to it. Right. And, and of course, Donald Trump calls the informant who might provide this information a rat, which is why I'm wearing a rat pin today. Um, but you also mentioned something else. How often is an application for warrant denied? or at least delayed? Yeah, I'd say rarely, but um, I've seen it happen from time to time. And I don't think we should take that to mean that a judge is just a rubber stamp for the government. It's because the government takes a lot of time to get these right. As Joy said, like, you, you know, you go to the location, you look at it, you get the description. It gets approved by, you know, first the, the line of approval at the investigative agency, you know, say in this case, the FBI. And then it goes over to the U.S. Attorney's Office and the line prosecutor looks at it and it goes up the chain there. And so after all of that careful review, I would hope that in most instances, a magistrate judge is approving it. But there are times when they disagree as to whether they think the probable cause is established or whether the probable cause is fresh. 
And they may say, you know, if you want to bring it back after you do more investigation, you're welcome to do that, but I, I'm not going to sign it right now. So that does happen from time to time, but I, I would say less than 10% of the time. Okay. And Joyce, let me ask you a question about how you execute. Um, in this particular search call warrant, it a raid. She gets a little worked up. Uh, I, I said it myself that when we were taping no. the promo and had to stop no. and go back, it's no. so easy to say raid. No way. I, I would never say raid. It's a <laughs> lawful search warrant that's being executed by lawfully empowered agents of the government. Um, but this one said it had to be executed between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. And one of our listeners wants to know the rules for seizing items agents see during the search, but that aren't specified in the uh, attachments to the warrant. You know, for example, if they find a phone or a gun or cocaine in plain sight. So um, that was came from Forbes to now. Um, tell us what you think about the rules for executing, including things that are in plain sight but aren't specified. Yeah, well, you can always seize um, evidence that you find in plain view of crimes if you're lawfully authorized to be in that place. And of course, when you're executing a search warrant, you're by definition lawfully authorized to be there. So let's say you walk in to execute a search warrant for documents at a business or at someone's home, and you see in plain view um, a fully automatic machine gun, right? By definition, illegal. Yes, you can seize it along with um, cocaine that you see and child pornography and, and other uh, evidence of criminality that's in plain view. Um, Jill, you also asked about the details of the warrant, the conditions under which it can be executed. And those two appear on, on the warrant itself, and it's very specific. The uh, judge will uh, give you a date by which the warrant has to be executed. And that's because you have to execute a search warrant based on fresh evidence. You have a little bit more latitude when you're searching for documents um, or information on a computer that people might be less likely to move than that fully automatic weapon or the cocaine. Those tend to move a little bit more quickly. And so judges like your um, information to be fresh within days, not weeks. Maybe with documents, you get away with weeks. But nonetheless, these always have an expiration date on them. Typically, you've got to execute your search between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Sometimes on the basis of good cause shown, you can convince a judge to let you go in early or late. That usually involves safety concerns. And of course, for a no-knock warrant, you need authorization. But Merrick Garland, I think, has discontinued the use of no-knock warrants by federal agents. So that wouldn't have been in play here. And Barb, there are times when a warrant isn't necessary. Can you talk about the exceptions that would make it still a, a constitutionally viable search under the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, so the Fourth Amendment just prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures and says, except upon a warrant based on probable cause. So if you have a warrant, you're good, but you, you're also good as long as your search is reasonable. So there are a number of exceptions. One is consent. If uh, and, and that's typically the way they try to proceed, Merrick Garland said in this case, they try to proceed as unobtrusively as possible. So you can just ask someone, can I have those documents, please? You know, I, I don't want to rummage through the drawers of your of your basement. Just give it to me. So consent is one. Plain view is another that Joyce mentioned. If I am lawfully in a place where I can see um, contraband, 
um, I can seize it. Uh, if, you know, if, if if this crime is essentially occurring in front of me because you're possessing something that it is illegal to possess, there is a search incident to arrest. So if I arrest someone, I can uh, take anything that's in their pockets. They sometimes refer to that as pocket litter and other kinds of things. Um, an inventory search from a vehicle. So if I arrest you and I have to take your car into custody because you're coming along, I can do an inventory search to see what's there. So that you know, mostly for custodial purposes. If uh, afterwards you say, but my diamond ring isn't in the car anymore. Uh, you can say there was no diamond ring in the car when you brought it. Um, th that would be another um, exception to um, a search warrant. And then the final one is uh, exigent circumstances. And that is there is something happening, you know, uh, a chase is afoot. Uh, the building's on fire. Uh, a terrorist is about to blow up the city. You know, I can just burst in and and stop that if I want to. There's also um, some question as to whether there's a national security exception. It has never been decided by the Supreme Court. The FISA Court of Review says there is, but that is a, an open question. So those are those are some of the exceptions. Excellent. And it's on the bar exam, by the way, for those who just took the bar exam, there you go. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was a bar exam. Answer. Was that it? was great. Oh, great. Okay. Good, good rules for our future lawyers. And one of our listeners, Anne, had a question about whether a search warrant is a public document and, of course, was wanting to know whether American people will be able to read it at some point. But we don't need to ask that question anymore because we are going to post the search warrant that has now been unsealed as part of our show notes. Now. You can also find the link in our show notes. Well, Trump supporters have always had very strong feelings about protecting classified material, it formed part of the basis for Trump's 2016 campaign. They called for Hillary Clinton to be locked up, even though investigation revealed she hadn't knowingly possessed classified material and certainly didn't share it with anyone. And Trump even signed a measure Congress passed while he was in office stiffening the penalties for mishandling classified information. So you would expect outrage, right, from the Trump camp, from Trump's followers, over the news that Trump himself engaged in this sort of conduct. Of course, that's um, in a perfect world, a world that makes sense where people uh, sort of engaged in consistency, not the world that we live in. And Barb, it didn't play out that way at all. How would you classify the response from other leaders in the Republican Party to what we've learned this week? Joyce, I, um, I'm absolutely disgusted by the response by the Republican Party. Uh, you know, on, with absolutely zero basis whatsoever, we've seen people like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, say this is, uh, you know, weaponization of federal agencies, of the regime's political opponents. Um, we saw um, the uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott call it third world country stuff. Elise Stefanik, who is a representative from New York, um, called for an immediate investigation into the Joe Biden administration for weaponizing the Justice Department. Marco Rubio did the same. Kevin McCarthy did the same. I mean, really shame on them. Um, it is clearly just partisan politics trying to gin up the public, uh, rile up the public over absolute nonsense. I don't know whether it will de-escalate now that we know that there really is a there there. I mean, could they possibly have been so misled as to believe that 
the search was baseless. And and now we know that, you know, a magistrate judge has found probable cause that these are very, very serious crimes. This isn't like, uh, you know, he took a souvenir menu from the White House mess. These are top secret documents. And so, you know, the idea that uh, they didn't say these are serious uh, matters and we should wait and see what happens. Instead, the, their immediate go-to is to attack, attack, attack. And I, I, I think it does a terrible disservice to our country to presume that. And, you know, I'm watching right now in Michigan an interesting thing play out. We've got the retrial of the kidnap plot against hmm. um, our, our governor, Gretchen Whitmer. And you know there were jurors in the jury selection. You say I don't, I don't trust the FBI. I don't believe the government. And entrapment is a big defense. When you've got Trump and all these other Republican leaders talking about how the FBI is just this, uh, you know, Gestapo police off, uh, department, that is damaging all the cases around the country that they're working on, where we need jurors and witnesses and people who get a knock on the door to treat the FBI with the respect and credibility they deserve. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And like you, I took particular offense um, at the way everybody in the Republican Party, the party of law and order, was so quick to turn on federal law enforcement. I was glad to hear Merrick Garland's defense of those folks when he spoke yesterday. Yep. I, some of the finest people I have ever worked with in, in my entire career are FBI agents who keep their heads down and do their jobs no matter what criticisms are lobbed at them. But this was completely unwarranted and, and unfair. Um, and, of course, it got worse uh, from these folks, right, Jill? Uh, there were completely unfounded allegations that the FBI must have planted evidence Um and that sort of made me presume, and it looks like today's revelations bear out, that, that they were only saying evidence was planted because they knew bad stuff would be found. But can you um, talk a little bit more about this and talk about whether you think this sort of behavior coming up with these pretextual sort of defenses, is it laughable, is it dangerous, or, or, or is it something else? And, and do you agree that DOJ's response has been adequate? I agree that it is laughable, dangerous, and that it is delusional, that it, as Barbara has pointed out, is something that threatens all of our trials, not just this case, but all of them. And the response has been just so over the line. We're not talking about just minor stuff. Uh, you've seen on other networks, not on MSNBC, but on Fox, you've seen all these allegations about planting. It goes back to the fraud in the election. It goes back to the fact that the Republican Party is now a fact-free party. They will say anything. It doesn't have to have any supporting evidence. They go to court. They are thrown out. And yet 30 million Americans believe the things they say, they've taken control of the narrative in this way and created something that's hard to change, even though the facts are quite the contrary. So I consider this to be, uh, I mean, maybe laughable is, is, is the wrong word, but dangerous is definitely the right word. And somehow this has to be stopped. You know, there have been defamation cases brought against some of the perpetrators of the big lie, and the financial consequences may be enough to stop them in the future or at least make them think twice before they do it again. But I don't know what's going to happen with members of Congress who are doing this, as well as the press. Somehow there has to be a way to stop this because it is very dangerous. 
So Barb, I think Jill is dead on the money when she says that dangerous is the right word here. There were also calls on social media for violence. You, like I, have some experience in dealing with local militia groups and appreciate um, that sometimes it's just talk and, and sometimes there's real impending violence behind those words. How do you assess the seriousness of what's going on here? I think it's very serious, Joyce. I mean, you're right. Sometimes it's just loose talk, but we saw people talking about it's time to lock and load, you know, civil war. Um, and we saw somebody take action. I, I don't know yet if it's all come out about the precise motivation, but we had this man go to the FBI office in Cincinnati with uh, a nail gun and an assault rifle. I don't know what he planned to do, but when they wouldn't let him in the door, he fled. There was a chase, there was a standoff, and he was killed. I, I see that man as a pawn, as an exploited victim of Donald Trump. You know, there's this thing called stochastic terrorism that means um, the leader calls for violence in a very generalized way. And listeners hear that and take action. It's the same way Al-Qaeda and ISIS used to act. You know, take violence where you are, kill the infidels where you are. And it goes back to, uh, you know, won't someone rid me of this troublesome priest? Oh, I, I just meant it rhetorically. But there are people out there, and he has to know there are people out there who will take the bait because it's exactly what we saw on January 6th. In fact, there's reporting that this man who uh, went to the FBI office in Cincinnati went to Washington on January 6th. So it's so incredibly irresponsible to— uh, express this kind of outrage when we live in a world where people have incredible access to weapons and we see so many of our public leaders under threat of violence. You know, this goes back a lot further because remember the pizza parlor where yeah. there was supposedly a pedophile ring operating under the control of Hillary Clinton yeah. and someone went there armed. All made up, yes. All made up and there are consequences for this and people have to start being held accountable for it. So I think the worst thing that Trump introduced into the public square is this notion. You know, this notion had lived beneath the surface, but he gave it some legitimacy that violence is an appropriate response to civil disagreements, that if you don't agree with what other people in your community are doing, we'll just go and shoot a nail gun at them. And we need to find some way to restore this sense of decency where, you know, it's like what you tell your kids, right? Use your words, not your fists. Um, uh, along with Trump leaving public life, we need to put a clear end to this notion that violence is ever an answer. And the problem that we have, um, and, I, you know, we all love to engage in both sidesism because we want to be fair to everybody, but the Republican Party has failed to stand up to its responsibility to unambiguously repudiate violence. The only time we've seen them come close is all of the Republicans who stood up in the immediate wake of January 6th when the terror, you know, was still upon them and, and when they were finally willing to say uh, that what Trump had done in condoning it was wrong. But for most of them, that was just a momentary departure. The only way the country gets back on the right track down the road is Trump is out of the picture and everybody stands up together and says, no more violence. And, and instead of having these sort of cases that just go by unnoticed, we return to robust prosecution of these people. 
I hope that we'll see law enforcement take things seriously. I think we will after what happened in Ohio. But this is this is dangerous business. And, and Jill, that really has come home to roost, I think, in how we've seen the magistrate judge who signed off on the Mar-a-Lago search warrant treated. Um, the judge has fallen under attack. You know, you have this unique historic perspective among us because you can view the reaction to Watergate, Nixon, and how Nixon tried to condemn people who were accusing him, and view what's going on today in light of what happened then. How dangerous do you think these sorts of attacks on the judiciary are? And did you see anything similar during Watergate? There is no similarity to anything from Watergate. This is something that Donald Trump, in my view, has unleashed. This idea that violence is okay. Um, It is true that Richard Nixon believed that the ends justify the means, and if the president does it, it's not illegal, something that he does share with Donald Trump. But there was never this kind of physical violence. And I am disturbed, upset at the danger of this. And reading the articles about some of these violent um, threats which has caused the temple that the magistrate belongs to to cancel tonight's Sabbath services because of the danger that it poses. Um, I have a friend who is his friend since Princeton and lives near him, and I worry about her too because if she's in the neighborhood and people attack him and his family, my friend is also in danger. But no judge should be in danger for what they do as part of our judicial system. It just shouldn't happen. And the reporting on it is taking it, I think, too lightly. As I read the stories, it's sort of just they're reporting facts of these threats, as opposed to raising alarm bells, which is what I think needs to happen, is we need to really be ringing the bell saying, this is dangerous, this has to stop. And social media has to start really enforcing its rules against threats of violence, and stopping this, because that's how it spreads, and it shouldn't be allowed to spread. So social media needs to take care, and even the the mainstream press has to be careful in not reporting this as just something that happens. It isn't something that just happens. It's dangerous. Well, this week, y'all have had some great questions. It's always one of our favorite parts of the show when we get to answer them. And this week, they look both backwards to stories that we discussed last week and and some interesting questions that emanated from that show. But also, so many of you are already thinking about issues that are related to where we're headed. Um, Our first question comes from Peter. And Barb, I think this one is for you. Can you give us a refresher on the different types of damages? What are compensatory damages? What are punitive damages? How often are they actually collected? Yeah, that's a great question because it came up in the Alex Jones um, reporting. So compensatory damages are to compensate someone for their loss. In civil cases, unlike criminal cases, nobody goes to jail. 
but you're trying to make a plaintiff whole. So if it was a contract matter, you get the money that you should have gotten under the contract. In a tort case, it might be pain and suffering. It might be medical bills. It might be lost wages. So compensating you for your losses to make you whole to the extent you can, right? You can never get back a lost limb or some of the things that you've had to endure. Those are compensatory damages. Punitive damages are to punish. You know, punishment and punitive come from the same family of words, I guess. Um, and so if there is a particularly outrageous tort that is committed uh, or you know, violation of some other duty that is so outrageous that it offends um, social norms, then a jury can even go a step further and award punitive damages. And that's what happened in the Sandy Hook case uh, with Alex Jones, that his lies weren't just defamatory. It wasn't just that you know, he kind of got it wrong. It was that he did something so horrible and so cruel that he deserved to be punished for it. And so that's punitive damages. So Jill, next question is to you. It comes from Deborah. And Deborah says, could Congress pass a law that says money is not speech? Or could we propose a constitutional amendment that says money is not speech? What's Deborah trying to get at here? Well, I think she's thinking about the fact that the Supreme Court has said that a, a limit on campaign contributions is unconstitutional and that money talks. Uh, I don't think money is speech. And I think a constitutional amendment is what it's going to take, given that the Supreme Court has already ruled on that. It's hard to think of a law that Congress can pass without a constitutional amendment that won't fall within the same uh, rubric of uh, Buckley v. Vallejo. Our last question comes from Holly and Emma. They ask, uh, and I guess this is Holly asking maybe. Holly says, as I prepare to send my daughter off to college for her first year at Bates College, Joyce's alma mater, what advice would you give to young women going off to college in today's world? Um, so first, Holly and Emma, congratulations on picking Bates. I loved Bates. My daughter went to Bates. My childhood best friend's son went to Bates. Um, and, and it's an absolutely wonderful skill. I bet you that Jill and Barb and Kim and I could do an entire episode based on this notion of giving advice to young women going off to college. So I'm just going to say one thing, and it's keep your world big. Don't walk in with too narrow of a focus or specific idea of what you want to study and who you want to be when you grow up. Keep everything broad. Go hear all of the speakers. Take a class that's way out of your comfort zone. Really give yourself the opportunity to find things that you love. I know my daughter went in thinking she would study um, psychology, and it turns out that she's in her second year of a fellowship looking at food policy. So she went as far of a distance as she possibly could have from where she started, and it ends up she's following her passions. I think that's what you want to set yourself up to do. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Joyce Vance. We'll be really delighted to have Kim back next week. It's sure to be another action-packed week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, hoodie, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, some of our favorites, HelloFresh, Liquid IV, Noom, and Helix. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps other listeners find the show. 
See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sisters in law. I wonder what Merrick Garland would think about being called a ninja. Do you think he has one of those ninja suits that he wears back there when he's in his private office? I bet you he has some of those little stars, maybe. You know, it's sort of like Superman, right? He runs into his private bathroom behind his office and he changes and he comes out as Ninja Merrick Garland. Oh, it's like Dark, dark Brandon with the laser eyes. Ninja Garland. You heard it here first, folks. 